We are in chapter 7. I'll read the first nine verses of the chapter to maintain the context. As we continue looking at Paul's counsel, marital counsel, which comprises the bulk, if not the entirety, of the seventh chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 1, reading through verse 9. This is the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it. It's not the words of men, but it's indeed the word of the Lord for you this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's ask for his help as we consider this portion of it. The preaching of it, even this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now our attention to the life-giving word that you've given to us, these things that are here in front of us, we pray that your spirit would attend to all that is said and heard. We are confident of your promise that you will grant your spirit to us. And so we ask that you might do that even now, that we would be hearers of your word, but also doers of it. We pray and ask for Christ's sake. Amen. According to one report, I think in the New York Times, according to one set of insurance statistics, the death rate for married men aged 25 to 34 is 1.5 per 1,000. For single men, it is twice as high, more than 3.5 per 1,000. The difference is greater as men grow older. In the the age group, 35 to 44, the death rate for married men is 3.1 percent, uh, 3.1 per every 1,000. For unmarried, it is 8.3 percent, or 8.3 for every 1,000 people. Among all women, the mortality rate for single females is almost twice that of women who are or who have been married. All of this interesting stuff that was written in 2014, I suspect the numbers are higher now. All of this is nice, but really all of it teaches us one thing, as the article so plainly states. All of this means one thing, that the moral is this, better wed than dead. (laughs) 
And the Apostle Paul, in our verses before us, he might put a different spin on this entire thing. Maybe he would say something like this, better wed than sin. I know it doesn't rhyme. Who cares? That's the point. Better wed than sin. It is better to marry than to burn with passion and sin against a holy God, he would say. All of these statistics notwithstanding, that would be his most pressing concern. And in these two verses, the apostle sets forward, really, two beneficial ways of living. He gives, again, marital counsel. He gives counsel in general to both the single among the church and as well to the married in the church. He does not say or argue that one is even better than the other necessarily. That is not really his point. In doing so, he highlights for all of us that each one is good. That is, is being single is indeed good and has its benefits. And being married, too, is good and, and it has its benefits as well. To the single, he would say it is good if that is the will of God for you. That is to say that if God has given you the gift of singleness, then it's a good thing. He just said this at one verse previous. It's a gift of God. You ought not despise it. To the married, he says also, equally so, it is also good. And if that is the will of God for you, then you ought not despise it. And each one of them, of course, have differing benefits and circumstances that flow out of each category as Paul highlights them in these two verses that are before us. Both are good. Both are beneficial. Both are not, uh, neither one of them are to be despised or looked down upon in any way. For both are gifts of the God of heaven. Now, the context of our two verses that we're considering, verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, we're right in the middle, as I've already mentioned, these issues that Paul deals with, the issues that affect or pertain to marriage or relationships, very intimate, close relationships within the life of the church. We've already considered that the, the, the relationship of marriage and, and all that comes from it, that one singular benefit that we're going to come back to in a second, as highlighted in the first seven verses of the chapter. Now, Paul, he turns his attention now to address, again, singles and married within the life of the church until he turns to a more darker subject, that, of course, the divorce and all that comes with that. All of it, Paul gives to us here as a realist, a man living in the world, a man living in the church, knowing the frame that we carry and the temptations of our own hearts and minds and the way we think and all of it, he is a realist, and so he gives to the church very practical, godly, pastoral counsel to you in the church this morning, you who are single. Maybe you're like some in the church who think being single is, because is to be regarded as some kind, some kind of second-class citizen, some kind of junior somebody or other, but you haven't really ascended until you actually wed in the life of the church. That's nonsense, and Paul's going to tell you why in a minute. On the other hand, you who are married, you haven't ascended to some higher place either. Both of them are gifts. Both of them are good. They both come from the same God. And they both have their purposes and their benefits as God sets them before us and uses them for the good of his kingdom. And so this morning, I want to show you the Apostles' Council. These two verses here, Council. 
the apostles' counsel to the singles of the church, as well as to the married in the church. I'm going to show you here in these two verses the Apostle Paul's counsel to the singles in the church as well as to the married in the church. Two points as we consider these two verses. Not rocket science, really. Not a difficult text. Not hard exegetically. There's nothing, there's no real traps in these verses. There's no real you know, hidden factors behind the Greek. It's pretty straightforward, which I'm kind of thankful for, frankly. Two points. First, the counsel to remain single. Paul gives that to us in the very first verse, verse 8. Then he turns the corner, and that adversative that he uses in verse 9 with that word but there, translated in the English, the first word of your ESV translation, he turns the corner and gives counsel uh, to the married. Counsel to the singles of the church. Counsel to the married in the church. Let's first consider the counsel he gives there in verse 8 when he begins to address this subject. Two categories are presented by Paul. I'm not going to bore you with all the exegetical and linguistical, grammatical ins and outs of these two categories. There has been much ink spent and spilled over the question as to what he means when he says to the unmarried and the widows. You would think, of course, naturally, if you're thinking like I'm thinking right now, you would think, well, what's the difference? Isn't a widow unmarried? Why mention the widows? Why mention them at all? And I'm not going to bore you with all this. I can tell you simply that the widows in the church, as far as Paul was concerned, had a special regard. And there may be another reason. I'm coming to it in a minute. Needless to say, all of the ins and outs of the exegetical gymnastics that have been given to explain why Paul lays this before us in this way, one thing we know for certain, he's talking about unmarried people. I think we can agree whether you want to argue and debate the the categories that he establishes here up front. I think we can all agree without too much difficulty. We don't need to call a presbytery meeting and debate on the floor of presbytery exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about single people, either that which who have been married at one time who are now not married or people who have never been married before. Agreed? Agreed. I think we know that that's his fundamental points of departure. And so he gives a counsel to them. Here's what he says. Verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them. It's in the plural. He's describing or talking about these two categories that I've already mentioned. He's talking about the unmarried in the church, the many people in the church, for them to remain single as I am. Now, we learn something, of course, about something. We get an inside glimpse, at least in part, and probably not to our full satisfaction, of something about Paul. We get first something about Paul's matrimonial status and history. What was Paul's matrimonial history? This has been long debated in the church, and the traditional view is that Paul was never married. That is the traditional view. I recognize that. I've read enough to know that that is the predominant position of the church. I grew up believing that as a child. It was taught to me, preached to me multiple times. That has been the traditional view of church history. But it is not the only one. 
There are some, in fact, some who through argumentation have compelled me, and I mentioned this last week, and I watched some of you probably have just about a coronary when I said it, but the fact remains, I am not convinced that that's true. In fact, I believe that Paul was indeed married at one time. I say that for a number of reasons. I'm not going to give you the long list. We'd be here all day. You don't want to do that. And I got to be somewhere at one o'clock anyway. But I say this simply, practically. Paul writes as a man who knows something about the subject in which he's writing. He doesn't write, as it were, as an outsider looking into a marriage or marriages. You might say, well, well, pastor, he, he had help. You know, he had the, the benefit of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true, obviously. But it does strike me in this chapter, especially and in other places of the canon of the Bible in which Paul's name is attached, he writes with what appears to be a significant level of experience in marital matters. Now, is that enough? Probably not. Maybe it satisfies you, maybe it doesn't, and that's all fine and good. We can still be friends. I'll still love you anyway. Some have argued that Paul was indeed married and that his wife separated from him in Jerusalem. When Paul came to the Christian faith, she remained and held on to her Judaism, and Paul moved on in his new understanding, newfound understanding of the Christian faith rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ after he met him on that road to Damascus. You marry these two issues up, it seems plausible to me to at least consider the possibility whether you're going to be dogmatic or not about it. But what is this matrimonial status now? Well, I think this we can all agree about. Unless you want to ignore the plain reading of verse 8. He's single. However it is he arrived there, whether he was always a single man, never married, if that is your view, congratulations, that's fine. Or if you hold the view that he was never, that he was indeed married at one time and by other circumstances he's no longer married, I think we can agree, can't we, that he right now, this moment, as he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, he's writing as a single man. Why do I say that? Because that's what he says. And sometimes things are so obvious we miss them. He says to the unmarried in the church, the widows, these categories of people, to remain single as I am. It's in the present tense. There's no question in the Greek of which he is speaking. Not as I were at one time, but now I am married or I am. No, he is a single man. We can agree with that. And so he has, of course, some sense, some understanding, some even experience as to what it is like to be a single person, whether he was married or not, and now is single, or was never, he has experience here too. And notice how he describes this status. You young people in the church who are at that age where marriage is becoming more and more a reality in your mind. It's funny how that happens, right? When you were five, you were like, blech. Ah, that girl's got cooties. Oh, hang on, that's going to change. Those of you who are older in, older in age and are single in the church, just ought to encourage you. 
Paul says to you, single people, it is good to remain that way. He describes it that way. He doesn't describe it in any other way to make some kind of definitive statement or some argument that being single is somehow a junior varsity level of existence in the church. And I have actually heard people make these kinds of comments from pulpits and Bible studies with friends. Oh, you got to get married because if you're not married, you know, you really haven't ascended to the... Yeah, right. Paul would disagree with you. Paul says it's good to remain as I am. To remain as a single person is advantageous even. To remain as Paul is, to remain single. Paul is not arguing comparatively by category here. He is not saying that marriage is some second-class condition of life either. He has just commented on the subject of marriage. He has commended it. He has said the, the, the benefits and the value of marriage. He's going to come back to that in a minute. But he does recognize that single people are not second-class citizens either. And those of you single in the church, who the Lord may give the gift of continence, may give the gift of singleness, and you don't know, but he may, he may be doing that. You may even know that he's done that. You don't have to fret, you don't have to worry, you don't have to be discouraged because you're not one of those people that have a spouse. It's good. God has given you that gift. It's a good thing. All perfect gifts, all good gifts come down from God from heaven. You would not despise that gift. You need not turn away from that gift. Paul says it's good. It's a good thing. And he says so because for you, single people, there are certain benefits that come. He says to them in verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, you're still looking at your Bible going, I don't see anything benefits. I don't see any benefits listed here. He doesn't mention benefits. He just says that statement, and then he moves on to the next category. That's true. But this is a sermon. And you're thinking, probably, as a single person sitting out there, well, what bene- what, why is it good? What makes it good? What benefits can come to a person who has received the gift of God to remain single as Paul is single? What possible benefits can there be? It seems to me that all I've ever heard is that I'll never be good enough, I'll never be where I need to be in life, unless I'm married. But there are benefits. I'm always amazed at the providence of God, frankly, in just the way he works things out and knows better than I during the week as I work on a text of Scripture how things are going to unfold on any given Lord's Day. Because one of the benefits that I'm going to give you was given to us earlier today. I'll get to that, getting ahead of myself. But there are benefits. I'm thankful to one commentator for four different benefits. I'm going to expand on those in my own words, but the headings are his. Because we might have been here all day as I sat and tried to, as a married person, uh, figure out all the benefits of a single person. I don't remember what that's like. It's been 35 years. I don't know what that's like. I don't think I remember much of it. Well, what are some of these benefits? Well, first, quote, singles have more freedom in difficult times. This is not foreign to the chapter. 
If you look at verse 26 of this same chapter in Corinthians, he says there, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, most commentators here, without being overly dogmatic, are talking about impending persecution coming to the church. And for a single person, it's much easier to deal with that than it would be for a married couple with children in tow. More moving pieces, more issues to resolve, more factors placed in front of them. Singles have more freedom in difficult times. Second, singles have more flexibility to go to difficult places with the gospel. There are places in the world today in which the gospel needs to go that is hostile. I was looking for a better word, but that's the word that came into my head. So there it is. Hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dangerous, even. Life-threatening. So much so that I receive missionary reports and all I get is their name. I don't even get where they are out of fear that they would be harmed if people found out. Imagine a family with kids in tow going into these more hot. It is more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult. It is easier for a single person to say, the Lord's called me to Japan. Off I go. I don't have to think about the husband and my kids and all the the visas and all, all the financial responsibility and the financial burden and all the other things that come along with that. I can just go. It's easier for a single person to go into a more hostile situation. This is really just a matter of common sense. If you have the desire to advance the gospel in those places of the world where animosity is great, you have more flexibility to do that, and you may want to remain single. There are exceptions, of course, to this. None of these headings are universal rules, absolutely applied to every single situation and every single person. One commentator commenting on the exception to this statement, he says, Don Richardson and his wife took their infant son with them to the cannibalistic Sawway people of Erajaya. As told in his classic Peace Child book, maybe you've read it. They survived. They saw the Sawi people come to Christ in mass. Even their infant son that was with them, Steve Richardson, is now the director of Pioneer's Mission. Again, it's not a universal rule, but these are the exceptions. These are not the rules. Another example, one you do know about, I suspect anyway, you at least ought to. Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot, remember him? The guy that famously said to one of his friends in Bible school when he asked him, if you have a call to the mission field, and the guy said, are you going to go to the mission field? And the guy said, oh, I don't have a call to the mission field. And Jim Elliott said, you don't need a call, you need a swift kick in the pants. Jim Elliott, where'd he go? Yeah, to a friendly bunch of people. No, an unreached people group, the Aka Indians. Hostile. Killers. Took his family. We know what happened to them. He died as a result. Elizabeth Elliot stayed with their children, and the gospel advanced in that place. Yes, there are exceptions, but in general, 
it is easier for a single person to take up this work. Third, singles have more freedom to devote themselves fully to God and His service. Marriage brings with it, in the words of one commentator, marriage brings with it a whole new set of priorities that are not a part of single life. Now, every married person in this room knows that that's just true. More mouths to feed. More responsibilities, therefore. More necessity of making sure all of those needs are taken care of. Because once you get married, you know, funny kids have a funny way of showing up. And then you got that duty on top of everything else. Paul hints at this in verses 32 through 35 of the same chapter. These responsibilities require time, and there's only so much time in a day. Single people do not have the pressure and responsibilities of a spouse, children, and all the things that typically go with married life. For instance, if a single person and a married person commit to giving himself entirely to the Lord and his work, and the married person does the same, generally speaking, the single person will be able to do more since he does not have the added responsibility of a family. This is just a fact. It's just, again, common sense. This is only 24 hours in a day. Many of you wonder, how is it you can work so many hours a week, Pastor Bill? We wish you wouldn't. You're going to kill yourself. I've heard you people see, I've heard you say that. At least some of you. Well, if this is all true, why is it I'm able to do that? Well, one, I am married, as you know, but I don't have that other responsibility of kids in tow. If my wife was home wrestling with uh, children, I would not be able to do that. I would need to get home eventually so that I might relieve her of that responsibility and help her with it. As it is, I don't have that as much, or at all, frankly. Single people generally just have the means and the ability to do more than the married person. There's a trap for many men in the ministry who are married. They become consumed with the work of the church that they forget their wife and children. I've seen it. They turn into workaholics and they forget they have a family. And so what do they do? For the sake of the church, they blow up their family. They become consumed with that work and they forget their wife and children. Frankly, that, that is just a poor witness of the gospel. Again, using one commentator, as he illustrates this very point, he says, for over 15 years, one man, I'm not going to name him, was away from his family an average of 10 months each year. you imagine? 10 months? Okay. When he visited home, he often didn't even unpack his suitcase. I've made an agreement with God, he says, that I'll take care of his helpless little lambs overseas if you'll take care of mine at home. But his marriage ended in divorce. One daughter committed suicide, and the daughter who wrote about their family had to struggle through a lot of emotional trauma. Married. Out of balance. Commend his zeal for the advance of the gospel. Don't commend his labors in his own home. It is easier for a single person to commit to more of those things just by virtue of the fact that there's only so many hours in a day and they have typically less responsibilities in the marital and the family life than married people do. Fourth, singles have more freedom to give sacrificially to the Lord's work. Why? Again, it's common sense. Raising a family is expensive. I don't think I need to tell you that. So we live in a pretty rotten economy. 
It's expensive. I was just talking to somebody just recently about the cost of groceries for their family that has gone up astronomically. Why? Well, because he's got a family to feed. He's got a wife and children he's got to take care of. Single people have one mouth to feed. Theirs. Typically, that means less grocery bill, which typically means then, therefore, if the Lord moves them that way to give more sacrificially to the work of the Lord and his kingdom, whether here or overseas. It is certainly true that married couples can give generously and do give generously to the Lord's work. They cannot give as much as an unencumbered single person who is committed to the Great Commission. A single person doesn't have to worry about buying a home large enough for a family, paying for all of the food, clothes, medical bills, braces, college educations, and other stuff that rearing a family requires. A single person only has to, quote, provide for himself. He's free to give more to the Lord's work. It's good. Look at the benefits that I can't do, but you as a single person are able to do. The question, of course, as a single person, are you seizing those benefits, at least in part? Are you taking advantage of these things? Maybe the Lord is calling you. He's gifting you to remain single, that you might labor in the work of the ministry, the labor as a missionary in Japan and, or Belgium or, or wherever the Lord might call you. Maybe that's what he's doing. I don't know. Maybe he's calling you to remain single, that you might give more of your time to the work of the church and more sacrificially to the work of the church. To give of yourself in a way that, frankly, married people, generally speaking, are just not able to do. Whatever the case may be, whatever the reason, it's good. It's not bad. It's all good. But Paul doesn't end there, does he? He, does, he turns the corner because he's a realist. He recognizes that when you look across the faces of a congregation, you see more married people than you see single people. That's typically true of most churches, I suspect, anywhere you might go. It's certainly true here. He's a realist. He understands that not everybody can or will remain single. Not everybody has the gift of singleness given to them by God. And so he begins, verse 9, with that adversative. And that's really what it is. It's an adversative. As a good pastoral realist, he understands that it's not always possible to remain as he is. Note, he has not commanded people to stay single. That would be a little absurd. He also has not commanded people to get married necessarily either. He's just simply dealing with two categories. And so he uses that adversative but there. It's the first word in your ESV translation. It's the second word in the Greek, but don't worry about all the reasons for that. But, but he says. But. If they, who, who's they, the, the single people, cannot exercise self-control, it means that they probably don't have the gift of singleness. God hasn't given it to them. They ought to get married. Pretty simple counsel. If you can't exercise self-control, you need to get married. It's not rocket science. He simply says, but if you cannot, you must, you should Indeed, get married. He highlights for us a condition of the adversative, the but. 
And that condition is one of exercising self-control. We know self-control, of course, is a fruit of the Spirit. The form of the verb that he uses here is in the present middle, which means it's not something you're doing necessarily, and it's not something that's being done to you. It's really in the middle of those two poles. It's a work of the Spirit of God to work self-control in the lives of all of us, married, single, whatever it may be. You are to practice self-control. That is a fruit of the Spirit. But here he's referring specifically to a specific kind of self-control. A self-control over the mind and a self-control over the body. We know that that's true because of the way he completes the thought in the end of the verse. What self-control, Paul, are you describing? What are you talking about? Well, first, he's talking about mental control. It always begins in the mind, doesn't it? A lack of self-control begins in the mind. You may not think of it that way, but that's where it starts, especially in the area of which Paul is describing here. What area is that? Well, he says it right there at the end of verse 9. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. I don't think I need to spell it out. You can read. You know what that means. Self-control in the mind, the desire for relation is not itself sinful. Paul never says that. That's natural and normal. A man for a woman and a woman for a man, contrary to what we're hearing today in our world. It is unnatural for a man to desire a man or a woman to desire a woman. That itself is sin. But it's not a sin for a man to desire a woman and a woman a man. That's natural and normal. But we're sinners, and we need to exercise self-control. Why? Because that normal thing that God gives as a good gift... We corrupt, don't we? If you, that desire, that natural desire that's good and normal leads to sinful thoughts, then you are not exercising self-control. And you need to repent of it. But those sinful thoughts, those actions of the mind, they often lead to the actions of the body. I know David always gets used right about here, so I guess I'll just be like everybody else and just use him. Uh, It's a perfect illustration. What do you think he was doing up on that rooftop of his palace that one day as he's looking, gazing across the way at that woman Bathsheba? He wasn't exercising self-control. His brain was in gear in all the wrong ways because he acted on it in all the wrong ways. It leads to the physical control that Paul would appeal to us to have. Mental thoughts that cross the line lead to lust often manifest themselves in physical behavior that is inappropriate. That includes romantic contact with another person to full-out sexual adultery. Where did it start? In your mind? And it was acted out in the body. Paul says, look, if you can't exercise self-control in these areas, you don't have the gift of continence. You don't have the gift of singleness. God hasn't given you that good gift. He's given you another gift, which is good. That is, marriage is where you ought to go. Now, he's just said that in the first seven verses of the chapter, so he's functionally repeating himself here. But let me give you, as I gave to you earlier, the benefits of marriage. Because they're both good. Singleness and marriage, they both have benefits. They're both good. What are those benefits? Again, same commentator. The headings are useful. Why reinvent the wheel? 
First, marriage provides a God-given outlet for sexual desires. That's right in the passage. There it is in its context. There's no getting around this one. That's the point Paul's making. It is better to marry, he says, than to sin. Remember the opening illustration? Better wed than dead? Paul would say, no, better wed than sin. Better wed than to burn with passion. Better wed than sin against the holy God and violate his law. Better to get married than to continue losing control of yourself and do things you ought not to. If you are struggling with sexual desire, you single people, then it's better to get married, Paul would say. Get married. It's not likely you have the gift of celibacy. The only proper place for the God-given relations between man and woman is in the marriage. It is a benefit of marriage, and it is a gift of God. Remember that self-control does not terminate with marriage. However, just because I'm married, the self-control issue doesn't just disappear. We're sinners. How many married men have fallen egregiously into adultery because they didn't exercise self-control, but yet they were still married? No, you still need to exercise self-control, but Paul says this is good benefit to the problem. Second, marriage provides companionship to relieve loneliness. Some of you in this room are, would get married, would remarry, not so much for the first reason. I mean, I'm not stupid. But you might be lonely. Loneliness is an awful thing. It's terrible. And some of you who are at that age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. God knew that in Genesis chapter 2 when he witnessed Adam naming all the animals. And Adam came to this epiphany, this realization that, you know what, there's no one else on this earth like me. I'm, a, I'm unique. Everybody else has somebody else, but I have nobody. And what does God do? He says, you know, it's not good for a man to be alone. It's not good. It's not a good thing. So he gives him a wife. The first marriage. The first officiant of the first marriage who gave the bride away. God himself gives Eve to Adam. If you can't find contentment, single people within the confines of simple Christian fellowship in the church, then marriage is the solution to loneliness, and it is a good one, Paul would say. Third, marriage is the God-given context to raise up godly children. Obviously, in contrast to the single gift in which there should be none of that other stuff going on, no children. I know what happens. We live in a fallen world. Shouldn't. The only proper context for raising godly seed is in the confines of marriage. And children typically show up there, usually not too long after marriage. Think of my cousin. Their first child showed up 10 months after they said, I do. You do the math. A honeymoon baby. The right context. But it's also a great benefit, isn't it, to raise godly seed? The number one, way, number one way to evangelize the church, to grow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is for Christian couples to have kids. 
I don't think it's rocket science. You won't read that in any evangelism book somewhere, but I guarantee you it's one of the ways to grow the church. Have children if God gives you them, gives them to you. And it's a good thing to raise godly seed within the confines of a godly home, a godly marriage. If you desire children, single people, if you want to be a mom, you want to be a dad, it's not likely that God's given you the gift of singleness. Not likely. Fourth, marriage and children provide opportunities for witness to those without Christ in a way that singles just don't have the opportunity. Married people tend to hang around. Married people. Birds of a feather tend to flock together. Again, it's common sense. This is not to say that married people don't hang around single people ever, but it's a general principle in which married people generally associate with other married people. Married people have a different opportunity in a different context. It's just different than the singles among us. Not better, not worse, different. Married people tend to attract other married people as friends. Yet since a godly marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, a godly marriage will emulate the hope of the gospel to many. I could tell you story after story of proof of that. Rosario Butterfield comes to mind pretty rapidly, in which a godly family opened their home, and she was single, actually. Kind of defeats my point. Or maybe strengthens it, I don't know. One commentator says it this way. He says, so if you marry, it should not be for self-centered fulfillment. The idea of getting married and settling down in suburbia with your nice home, two cars, good job, weekend recreational hobbies, and, of course, a church for the weekends when you're not doing something else, the American church, is worldly. While marriage and children are gifts, good gifts from God that bring great joy and happiness, you should marry because you can better serve Christ in line with your spiritual gifts as a married person. All Christians are to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. If you get married to seek first your own happiness, then you'll come up empty. And so whether it's single, you seek the kingdom of God. You have different benefits and, frankly, advantages over the married people in that way. Not better, different. If you're married today, which is most of you in this room, your marriage should reflect the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what you should be pursuing, and you should be doing it to the best of your ability because it's good. God gave you that gift of marriage. Use it to the glory of God. Single, married, doesn't matter. They're both good. Use them for the purposes of in which God grants it. In either case, whether single or married, the goal of each is indeed the same. It is always the same. Jesus was never married. Sorry, modern scholarship and that movie. What was the name of that movie? The Da Vinci Code. Yeah, right. Okay, whatever. Terrible. Jesus was never married. It would have been inappropriate, frankly, for him to have been married. He is married. He's married to his church. And he maximized that benefit to the glory of his father. 
day and night, serving his people, laboring tirelessly to help the poor and the needy of the world. I think, frankly, it would have been much more difficult for him to accomplish that mission if it were possible for him to be married, which it weren't. And so to the singles in the church, it's very simple. For fear of repeating myself, take advantage of the advantage of the benefits that are afforded to you by God. Whether you are actually given the gift of singleness you don't, and you're not sure right now, don't worry about all that. The Lord will make that plain to you. But right now, you know you are single. Use those that benefits that have been highlighted to the glory of God's kingdom. Don't waste them. Don't squander those opportunities. You have many to offer, many benefits that the married people in this congregation simply do not have. Don't waste those times. To the married in the church, it's obvious. Take advantage of those benefits that God has given to you. Obviously, God has given you the gift of marriage. Why do I know that? How can I say that with absolute certainty? Because you're married. That's why. Use those benefits, then, that God has given you. Don't waste them. Don't squander them. Remember that your marriage is not to be lived for the sake of your spouse, but it is to be lived for the sake of the glory of God and His kingdom. You see, when both of these categories that Paul highlights here, the widows, the single, those that are not married, and to the married, when they all live according to the ways in which God establishes and gives to the church as good things, guess what happens to the church? It gets stronger, not weaker. At Corinth, there were single people. There were married people, too. And here at Providence, there are single people. We have them. Maybe I should just point you all out so everybody knows in case people are confused. I won't. You know who they are. You single people, use the benefits that God's given you. Maximize it. Don't waste it. Married people, do the same. And as we do that together, as we work together as a church, we're going to be a stronger congregation, not a weaker one. Don't you look down upon your single brothers and sisters in this church as though they haven't really arrived yet in this church until they get married. And you single people, don't you be looking at marriage as, as the end-all, be-all of existence either. It may not be for you. The Lord may have other plans. And so you trust him. He sees the benefits he's given. You wait with patience for God's timing. And follow his will, for you know what your, his will is for you. Where are you right now? And there you are is where he has you. And so you wait and trust on him and serve him according to the gifts that God has given you. Using all the benefits that he's offered you in whatever station you are in, single or married, one or the other, do it to the glory of God's kingdom. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these very practical things that should encourage all of us in our station in life. We pray that you would grant to us the strength to do these things and do them well to the glory of your kingdom, and that we would help each other along the way. We ask and pray for Christ's sake. Amen.